I'm Elizabeth Hill, in for Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. Of the legions of stories of World War II and the Holocaust that shaped our understanding of those history-changing events, one of the most extraordinary has remained hidden. The daring resistance efforts of Jewish women in the ghettos of the Nazi occupations. In the new book, The Light of Days, The Untold Story of Women Resistance Fighters in Hitler's Ghettos, Judy Battalion shares the acts of defiance and rebellion of women who saw and acknowledged the truth of their time. Battalion is also the author of White Walls, a memoir about motherhood, daughterhood, and the mess in between. Her essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Vogue. Battalion spent 14 years researching her new book. She says the light of days stemmed from her childhood and wanting to write about a strong Jewish female. First woman to come to mind was Hannah Senish, who was a paratrooper in the Allied forces. Legend had it she was caught, but she looked the Nazis in the eye when they shot her. And I'd studied her in middle school as the sort of symbol of Jewish female courage. But I wanted to understand more about her. Who was she? What made someone act with such audacity? So I went to the British Library and went looking for information about her and happened to come across a Yiddish book called Freuen in die Ghettos, Women in the Ghettos. I also happened to speak Yiddish. I started looking through this book, looking for information about Hannah Senish, but she was only in the last few pages. In front of her, there were you know, 170 pages of stories of other young Jewish women in Poland who had fought the Nazis who had defied the Nazis, who were part of an organized underground resistance. And I, as a granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, and as someone who has a, a doctorate in women's history, I was blown away. I had never, ever heard these stories. These were really stories about young Jewish women who, as I say, they hid dynamite in their undergarments, cash in their garter belts. They were smuggling weapons, people, information. They were blowing up Nazi supply trains. These were dramatic and daring stories that were so far from the Holocaust narrative that I had grown up with. And I was really dazzled by these stories. It, they really shook me, shook me up. Yeah. And, and that's why I knew I had to... I had to share them somehow. Why do you think it's been several decades and we still haven't heard much about these stories? That is a great question. And in a way, that was the kind of sub-question of all my research. One was, what are these stories? And two is, why don't we know them? And I, I've come up with uh, a number of reasons. Some of them are political or have to do with social zeitgeist. And a lot of them are personal as well. Those who survived to tell their stories, many did not tell their stories. They either tried to tell them and were not believed. Women were accused of sleeping their way to safety. Families didn't want them to, to speak. They were worried it would break them apart if they even told their stories. And many of these women also felt tremendous survivor's guilt Many of the women that I write about were ghetto fighters, and I'm thinking, for instance, of one woman, Hafia Bielika. She has this incredible story. Her family was, I mean, brutally murdered, but she herself 
then became an underground operative in the Bialystok area where she was smuggling weapons into the ghetto. She was smuggling guns in broad daylight into the forest. She was part of a group of 17 undercover Jewish women who started a league, an anti-fascist league, which included uh, Russian partisans as well as anti-Nazi Germans and was bringing weapons from what she did, espionage missions for the Red Army. I mean, she had an incredible wartime story. But she felt that compared to her fellow survivors who had been at Auschwitz or in death camps, she... She'd had it easy, and she felt almost guilty that she she had suffered less. And so she kept her story to herself for most of her life. And then there's another another reason, and I think that it has to do with coping. Many of these women, they felt a great duty to birth the next generation of Jews to become parents. And I think they really wanted to raise children in a happy, normal environment. And because of that, they, they, they simply didn't, didn't bring this up. During the course of your research, what surprised you the most? I, I mean, I think on the, on the grand level, it was really the scope of Jewish resistance. I just had no idea about the story. I had heard of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. But I really didn't know what happened in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. I didn't know it was very organized guerrilla uprising that you have 750 young uh, Jews, including about a third of them were women. I didn't know that over 90 European ghettos had armed resistance units or that 30,000 Jews joined partisan detachments or that there were armed uprisings at you know, five concentration and death camps. And, and underground rescue networks, many of which were run by women, supported 10, 12,000 Jews in hiding in Warsaw alone. I, I, these, were, these are you know, big numbers. Yeah. And I, I simply had no idea about this side of the story. And then, of course, women's role at the helm of a lot of this. I'm fascinated with this weaponizing youth groups. What was it about these, these youth programs that made them so prime for resistance? It's a really great question. And in fact, these are youth groups that functioned in Poland in the 1930s when the people I write about joined these groups as adolescents and people in their early 20s. Society was structured around these youth groups. But the groups I write about actually were socialist. They were all about intellect and very rigorous. They had reading groups. They were um, sports-oriented, very value-oriented, value-driven, um, collectivism, equality, self-sufficiency, the pursuit of truth. They themselves talk about how they went from being these groups that were all about creation to ones that had to become about destruction. And the groups themselves, I think, were primed to become underground militias, first of all, because they were the members of the groups were very close with each other. Jews often left their families to be part of collective living arrangements with these groups. It actually, parents got very upset that their children were leaving them for these yeah. groups. So they, they really knew each other well. They knew how to work collectively and collaboratively. They were very emotionally aware groups. They talked a lot about the importance of seeing and acknowledging the truth 
and they really took on the truth of the Nazis' genocidal plan. What is it about women in particular? So in this case, in this story, many of the women that I write about, were, they were able to go undercover. That's how they became underground operatives. Jews were, they were jailed in ghettos or in camps, but women were able to leave. They were able to go undercover and pretend to be young Catholic women. And the reason women were better able to do this was because, first of all, they were not circumcised. And so there was no physical marker on their body claiming that they were Jewish, as, as Jewish men had. So yeah. this was very important. Education in Poland in the interwar period was mandatory for men and women up through elementary school. But many families had chosen to send their sons to a Jewish school, but their daughters went to Polish public schools. And because of that, these girls learned Polish customs, they had Polish friends, they were used to hanging out with Catholic peers, and they spoke Polish with a Polish accent. They didn't have what they then called, someone referred to it as the creaky Yiddish accent. And all these elements made them able to disguise themselves, to go undercover. They dyed their hair blonde if they, if they didn't have lighter hair already. Um, obviously, the women that did this work had to already look good, as they called it, or be, look passably not Jewish right. um, in terms of their nose and their eyes and their ear, you know, just their features on their face. So they, they really dressed up, they, they disguised themselves, and that was something that was um, easier for women to do. Your book has an ensemble of characters and finds its main heroine in Renya. Who is Renya and why did you decide to put her at the forefront of the story? Renya is a girl from a middle-class family who celebrated traditional Judaism, but also was very much engaged in art and culture and uh, contemporary Polish society. She was from a small town, and Renya was 14, 15 when the war, when the war broke out. She caught my eye because she had, in the original Yiddish source material, she had the longest excerpt, and it was an excerpt of a book-length work that she had written immediately after the war. And this had been translated into Yiddish and put into this source material. And it was told in narrative and with detail. Renya was one of these undercover courier girls. And she worked between Warsaw and the town of Bejin in southwest of Poland. She went to cemeteries and dealt with arms dealers, purchased weapons yeah. from them, hid them in her clothes, taped them to her body. She smuggled fake IDs, dozens of them, um, again, things hidden in, in undergarments and in pockets and in bags. And her, her story was so, it, it had a lot of movement and life. And I was so drawn to just her storytelling. Brenya also was not she, did, she wasn't a super political person. She was not part of the youth movement originally. She was young. Yeah. But she felt to me almost like an every girl, an every woman, who felt very relatable in that sense.
There were so many stories that you came upon and so many women from the forests to the ghettos to Auschwitz. How did you decide which stories to include? This is a very, very difficult decision. Some of these women who, who did not survive, who had not survived, some, many, most of these women were dead by the time I got to this material. I felt so responsible to tell their story that it was very difficult to, to select as I began reading their testimonies and their memoirs and digging deeper and, and finding archival materials, I found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds yeah. of women with similar stories. So I think at one point I decided to go back to that original Yiddish book as, as a kind of inspiration and follow some of the characters that that book had, had highlighted. And then it was important for me to include a few people who came from some different backgrounds different types of youth groups. Some were more communist, some were Yiddishist, some were Zionist. So I tried to mix that up a little bit. Some of these women were from very impoverished families. Some were from middle class and wealthy families. And, and then, of course, some women, as you said, were couriers, these undercover smugglers. Some of them were partisans in the forest blowing up German supply trains, um, and some of them were carrying out uh, resistance activity in camps like Auschwitz. So I did want to include a combination to be able to show that this, this was not simply a few women that did this, but a much broader story of organized resistance across Poland. That was author Judy Battalion speaking about her new book, The Light of Days, The Untold Story of Women Resistance Fighters in Hitler's Ghettos which is published by William Morrow. The book was picked up by Steven Spielberg's Amblin Partners and will be produced as a film under the DreamWorks Pictures label with Battalion as co-producer. I'm Elizabeth Hill, in for Alison Dunn, and this is 51%. Now we head to the Middle East to experience life under a different regime. Inspired by our own experiences stationed in Baghdad during Saddam Hussein's rule, Former foreign correspondent Gina Wilkinson's debut novel is told through the eyes of three very different women in Iraq at the turn of the millennium. Wilkinson is an award-winning journalist who has reported for the BBC, NPR, and ABC. Her new book, When the Apricots Bloom, follows a secretary, an artist, and a diplomat's wife. Each must confront the complexities of trust, friendship, and motherhood under the rule of a dictator and his ruthless secret police. I asked what inspired her to write this story. Back in 2002, I moved to Baghdad in Iraq, and that came about because my husband was actually posted there as part of his work with UNICEF, and when he got this offer, I was ready for a change. I'd been reporting from Bangkok for about five years, and I've got to admit, I was also intrigued by the idea of going to Baghdad. At that time, it was still very much cut off from the outside world. You couldn't fly in or fly out. There was no foreign newspapers. There was no foreign TV. It was a very, very isolated country, but it was still a country that had for centuries, <laughs> a millennia even, um, and in the modern time, been you know, pivotal in so many historical events. So for a journalist like me, that was sort of catnip. Yeah. And at the time, we were actually told to expect a very quiet posting. You know, Saddam Hussein was still in power and nothing went on there without his say-so. Especially for me, because Saddam Hussein didn't allow foreign journalists to operate in Iraq. So I was going to put my career on the back burner for a while and see if I could maybe find some other work there. But pretty much just 
as we crossed the border, President George Bush gave his well-known axis of evil speech, and it soon became very apparent that it wasn't going to be a quiet posting, that the situation was actually quite volatile. And very soon after arriving, I was befriended by a local woman, and I later discovered that she was actually an informant for the Regime Secret Police. And she was basically keeping an eye on where I went, what I did, and who I spoke to. You know, I want to be clear, I definitely don't blame her for this, not at all. In Saddam Hussein's Iraq, if the secret police turn up at your house and say they want you to do something, you've got very little negotiating power, especially for someone like her who came from a fairly humble background. She had a family to protect. But, you know, many years later, I was still wondering, was it just a job for her? Was it just an unpleasant duty that she had to perform? Or were we actually friends despite this? And this was the sort of the the question that got me started with this book. And so the very first chapter starts with the secret police arriving at the home of an Iraqi secretary who works at a foreign embassy, and they demand that she befriends her boss's wife and through that relationship ferrets out sensitive information. You know, the story from that point is fiction, but it was that real-life, very complicated relationship, I guess, that provided the, the inspiration for the novel. You have reported from hotspots around the globe. What was it about Iraq that you had to look into further? You know, it was a really personally difficult time for me in Iraq, not just that transition from being a working journalist to being a dependent spouse. I actually went out and got a part-time job, so, you know, that wasn't as relevant. You know, I was there for the year before the um, ousting of Saddam Hussein and also for the first year of the U.S. military presence. And, you know, I went through a lot there. I mean, many Iraqis went through far worse things. But, you know, when I came out of it, I was eventually diagnosed with PTSD and depression. And, you know, I also made a lot of really, really strong friendships there, especially with my Iraqi female friends. So that left its mark on me, I guess, in terms of the harsh lessons that I learned In Iraq, I went in there as a 32-year-old woman. You know, I had worked in dangerous situations, but I'd never been in a war zone. I'd never lived under a dictatorship uh, where my, you know, movements were being watched, where my relationships were so complicated. And this left its mark. But my Iraqi female friends, you know, they have gone through such tough times, but they are such survivors. And when things really got bad... I knew I could turn to them and they would support me and they always encouraged me, don't give up, Gina, keep going, don't let this defeat you. And that is also something that I wanted to show in this book, the resilience of my Iraqi female friends and that that inspiration that they provided to me in the toughest of times. Is it safe to say that it was part of the healing process? Yeah, yeah, I I think it definitely, uh, definitely was. You know, when I was actually diagnosed with PTSD, I was living in Sri Lanka, another country that has suffered a lot of conflict, wartime conflict, civil war, a lot of natural disasters. Uh, Actually, soon after I arrived, um, the tsunami of 2004 happened, killing, you know, 100,000 people. And after I emerged from from that experience of war in Iraq, I was plunged into 
um, the situations uh, and the disasters in Sri Lanka, I finally got some um, you know, professional help. And she said to me, you know, when you're plagued by these recurring thoughts um, and these bad memories, write it down on a piece of paper quickly, just a couple lines, then screw it up and throw it away. I don't know if that is a, you know, a long-term solution, but I got to say in temporarily in the short term it actually was surprisingly effective, but I think, you know, really being able to explore these issues of trust and friendship, the issues of what do people do when they're put in extreme circumstances? How do people respond when they're in situations where they have to do something that is against their own morals or against their own ethical beliefs? Being able to explore that in more depth, I guess, enabled me to, in a way, answer some of the questions that I didn't get answered in Baghdad, that I was too afraid to ask or that I didn't have the opportunity to ask. The three women in your story are all powerful in their own right, but they have very different backgrounds. How did you develop these characters? Well, the first character is Huda. Her name, she's a secretary. Um, She works at a foreign embassy in Baghdad. And she is the person who is the reluctant informant for the secret police. So that situation or that character was inspired by my own friend. Then there is the character of Ali, who's the diplomat's wife who's being spied on. Um, she has some similarities with, with me. Um, we're both former journalists, so we found ourselves unable to practice her craft, our craft. But I guess the biggest difference is that, unlike Ali, I was fully aware of the fact that I was under surveillance. I had been warned in advance, uh, you know, expect that the, the office is definitely bugged, expect that your phone at home will be bugged, expect that your house will be bugged. And I was told if I ever want to have a private conversation with my husband, we should go for a walk outside because outside there's no power source for a hidden microphone. So I got my steps in back <laughs> head. You know, not not that I had anything to hide, but sometimes you just don't want people um listening in. You want to feel right. like you can talk freely. And because I knew I was being surveilled, I didn't know it was by one of my close friends. But you know, because of that I was very careful not to go around poking into sensitive matters. The character in the story is a bit more naive and maybe a little bit more selfish as well in terms of of her actions. The third character uh, is the character of Rania. She's an Iraqi artist. And this is a very important character for me. You know, I think a lot of people, when they think of Iraq, they're going to think of what they saw on their TV screens or in the newspapers during the Iraq war. You know, that's a fairly bleak picture But, you know, when I arrived in Baghdad, one of the things that surprised me and I'm extremely thankful for is that they had more than two dozen independent art galleries operating in Baghdad at that time. And I spent a lot of my time, my free time at those art galleries. It was one of the few places where I could go and feel somewhat free conversing with my Iraqi friends. Most of them were very worried about being seen in public with me because that would attract the attention of the secret police. But artists in modern times and in ancient times have always played this role of being conduits between the outside world and Iraqi society. And I mean, this goes back millennia. And, you know, that's, that was still the case when I was there. A lot of my friends were artists or I spent a lot of time in galleries. And so I created the character of Rania, the artist. She's a childhood friend of Huda's that they've become estranged due to certain events. But she comes from a very wealthy background, a sheikh's daughter, actually, whereas 
Huda was a, a village girl. That character of Rania enabled me to show a, a different side of Iraqi life. That was also something that was very important to me personally, was to show a more holistic picture of, of Iraqi society at that time. And two of these main characters are Iraqi women. What's been the reaction to you, a white woman, writing from an Iraqi woman's point of view? Yeah, you know, that, that is a great question. My Iraqi friends that I spoke to about it were 100% supportive. They loved the fact that I was going to be writing and including um, an Iraqi woman's perspective. I had several close Iraqi female friends fact-check the manuscript for me and provide their feedback, and um, they've all been extremely supportive about it. But, you know, I want to say, if we're talking about the Our Own Voices movement, you know, I agree that the publishing industry really has marginalised authors, you know, outside the white Western mainstream for far too long. We do need more diverse books written by diverse authors in settings that reflect the richness of our world. And I think readers will embrace those stories. They are embracing those stories. But at the same time, you know, I don't believe in setting rigid rules about who has the right to tell which stories. You know, I don't think an author should be confined to writing only about characters with a similar background or genetic code. Right. Uh, you know, the very talented British author, Zadie Smith, she wrote an essay and she said that she'd written from the point of view of adult and child, male and female, black, brown, white, and even uh, alive and dead. And <laughs> she wrote um, authors and their characters. She didn't think they should have matching what she called autobiographical coordinates. And, you know, I, I think I agree with that. Yeah. You know, I feel and I hope that something readers take away from my novel is that despite different backgrounds, we really do share a lot in common. You know, I think a lot of readers are going to see aspects of their own lives in, in this book and reflected through the Iraqi characters. Huda is uh, frequently launching diets and then falling off the diet bandwagon. I personally can relate to that. Her and uh, Huda and Rania both have to deal with uh, rebellious teenagers. I've, I've got a 13-year-old. I can relate to that. And um, Huda especially, she is juggling you know, the competing demands of work and home life. And these are sort of universal concerns. And I feel like we might pray in a different way. We might bake our bread differently. But at heart, the most important things we share, you know, we laugh the same, we feel the same pain. And when done right, when done with sensitivity, I think, you know, books are a great way to unite us. That was author Gina Wilkinson talking about her debut novel, When the Apricots Bloom, published by Kensington Books. That's our show for this week. I'm Elizabeth Hill. Alison Dunn will be back next week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again or sign up for our podcast, visit wamcpodcasts.org. Follow us on Twitter at 51% Radio. This week's show is number 1656.